guys doing? Great. Nice. Woo! Well, <laughs> appreciate it. All right. Well, my name is Steven Wetzel. I, I uh, help lead the campus ministry here at uh, James Madison University. Dudes. Yes. Along with my girlfriend, Amy Rosenquist. Uh, and it's, yeah, I've been so encouraged by the service so far, but we're, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and say a word of prayer right now uh, before we jump into the word. Uh, uh, dear God, I just thank you so much for, uh, for everything uh, you've done, God, to bring us to this moment. Lord, I just pray uh, that, that you can really be with us uh, for, the, for the rest of the service as you've been with us uh, this entire time, Lord. But I just pray that you can really uh, speak through your word, God. It's not any, any man's words, God, but, but yours. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you are the one glorified here, God, and that uh, we can all be led closer to you, Lord. And I thank you so much for, for your love, God, and everything that you've done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 22. We'll get started here. It's, it's a rather large room, uh, so don't be afraid to, uh, you know, be extra exuberant, extra excited about the Word of God. All right? We, we, we fill this room with, with our excitement for, for Jesus. Come on. <laughs> Amen. So, uh, just a, a way of background here. Uh, when I was growing up, to, to put it kind of bluntly... Uh, but somewhat proudly, I was uh, a big nerd. All right? Uh, yes. Uh, nerd and proud. And, and, and part of what that means is that growing up, when I was in you know, elementary school, middle school, I loved to read books. All right? Like it was my job because I didn't, you know, have a job. Uh, and I, I would, like, stay up re- late into the night, like, reading books. All right? Whether it was, like, Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or, you know, any, anything like that or Aragon. Uh, and I, I would, before school... Like, get up early to read more. Not like a, like a normal human child would probably, like, get up early to, like, play video games or to watch cartoons or something. No, I was reading books, and I know that doesn't make sense because you're supposed to be doing that in school, but that will tell you, uh, you know, the, the state of affairs in the Wetzel household in those days. But amen, I have no regrets. But a lot of times, the books I was reading would be turned into movies. And I don't know if this ever happened to you, but when a book that you love is turned into a movie... You have a lot of expectations about how that movie's supposed to go. Because when you've read the book, you've basically had like a movie running in your mind. And like that is a lot of pressure, turning a a beloved book into a movie. You know, as a director, you just got to like feel like the needs of so many people just like weighing down upon you, making you uh, lose sleep at night. Uh, But the thing is, I can't remember a single movie uh, that, you know, was based on a book that I love that I left being satisfied. I can't remember a single one where I was like, that lived up to my expectations. That seemed like it went pretty well. Like every time I was like, ah, oh, they left out this thing, they left out that thing, they changed this. Harry Potter doesn't even look like how I thought he looked. Like, who is this Daniel guy? Come on. It was, yeah, I, there was no time that I felt satisfied after watching one of those movies. And I had a lot of expectations going in. And I, had I, like, gone in without those expectations, I might have actually enjoyed myself. I might have actually, you know, gone and been like, oh, like, that's actually some pretty good cinematography. This Daniel Radcliffe guy isn't that bad, I guess. You know, but my expectations really shaped how I viewed the movie. And I just kind of, like, left, you know, with my hands in my pockets. And just like, man, like, this guy should have done this and that. And it, it, it kind of ruined the experience for me. But anyway, what does this have to do with the Word of God? Let's turn over to Matthew 22. The title of... My lesson today is the banquet must go on. And so we're here in Matthew 22, and, and this is a, a familiar place in the gospel. This is the climax of Jesus' ministry. 
All right, we're coming here to the end, and Jesus is laying down the smackdown of the century on the Pharisees. All right, and they, they, uh, he's in the temple, and he's, he's just got uh, finished telling a parable called the parable of the tenants. Which was, if, if you were here with us last semester, that's what we talked about last semester. All right, and, and Jesus has basically spoken this parable against the religious authorities, against the teachers of the law. And he's just finished the story. And just as a quick recap, the parable of the tenants is, is uh, you know, this story where there's this owner who has a vineyard. He lets some other people farm it. And he says, okay, all I want is a share of the fruit. All right. And he sends his messengers during the harvest time to say, hey, where's, you know, the, the, the stuff I expect, you know, for, for letting you use my vineyard. And then instead of doing the normal thing, you know, the thing that we might do, they like beat the, go- like they beat the messengers. They send them away empty handed. They disrespect him. Finally, the owner sends his son, and they kill him. All right, that's a bit of a no-no. Uh, and so the owner comes, and then finally delivers this judgment after making sure, you know, like they they uh, they had no chance of, of turning back. He gives them every opportunity. He says, "Okay, I'm going to take this away from you. And I'm going to give it to others." And this is parable about God's patience and His love for us, and, and giving giving us every chance to repent. And but it, it's very clear that Jesus has already said the kingdom is going to be taken away from these people and given to others. It's a parable spoken against the religious authorities at the time. And, you know, there's, there's so many people listening to this parable and, you know, there's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and they're obviously incredibly angry at Jesus. And it says that they're looking for a way to kill him. All right. But then there's this other group, you know, the, the rest of the crowds who might be thinking like, man, maybe this is our shot at the kingdom. If these guys aren't going to make it, if it's not there's like perfect legalism that gets us in, maybe I've got a shot here. Maybe I will inherit the kingdom of God. Maybe I'm the person who's going to take the kingdom after these people have been driven out. And so we have these two very polarizing reactions here. And let's, let's start reading here. Matthew 22 verses 1 and 2. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. And we're going to stop right there, because immediately, whether we realize it or not, Jesus has tipped his hand into what he's going to talk about. Because they get this very obvious reference to this banquet. And Jesus, by saying the kingdom of God is like a banquet, is a very clear reference to uh, Isaiah 25. And we don't get that because we, we did not grow up reading the Hebrew Bible and memorizing every uh, bit of it. But these very well-educated uh, teachers of the law would have understood what Jesus was talking about. And uh, actually, go ahead and flip over to Isaiah 25 and keep your, keep your finger in Matthew 22. Okay. We're going to look at what Jesus is saying here. Because what Jesus has done is he's referenced the most controversial passage in the Old Testament at this time. And to understand why, we have to understand that the the Jews at this time did not look too fondly on people who were not Jewish. The Gentiles were kind of seen as lesser. The Israelites were the people of God. And everyone else was just kind of second class. And they had a lot of reasons to be bitter about people who were were non-Jews. They're living under Roman occupation. Before that, they were living under Greek occupation. Before that... Uh, Babylonian occupation, and before that, Assyrian occupation. So many people, so many non-Jews have come into this area and oppressed the people of Israel. So there's a lot of bitter feelings 
about people who are not Israelite at this time. But here we have a prophecy about a banquet at the end of time with the Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy that they all would have known well. And it says in verse 6 of Isaiah 25, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. And that is challenging for someone who's hearing this at this time. Because when the Bible says all peoples, you go, "Uh uh-oh. Wait, 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 wait. Like, you mean to say that not just us are going to be there at the end of times with God and the Messiah? Like, I don't know if that exactly, like, jives with my fine Jewish pharisaical sensibilities about, like, who's good and who's not. I don't really like the fact that there's going to be these other people at the banquet with us during this, like, end of times jamboree that's going on. Don't really, not really psyched about this option here. And it's so controversial that actually... When they were translating the Bible from Hebrew into Aramaic, which was the, 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 the uh, lingua franca, or the, the common language in Palestine at the time, they changed this passage to say what they wanted it to say. And they said, uh, not all peoples, maybe not that. And there was actually commentaries which would embellish on this story wow. from the time. It said, yes, all peoples will be invited, but guess what? It's a trap. And the Gentiles, they're going to be slaughtered. And all these other people, they're going to be killed. And it's so clever that we're like throwing this banquet to get them all here and we're going to show them how things really are. And it's, just, it's crazy they were twisting the word of God to say something that they wanted it to say. Wow. But Jesus, by referencing this passage, has already tipped his hand. And he's like, you know where we're going with this? Right back where we were. We're talking about how you guys aren't the only ones right. wow. who are going to get there. We're talking about how you teachers of the law, you guys are not the only ones who will inherit the kingdom. And they go, whoa, like, we do not like where this is going. And then he continues, Matthew 22. Go ahead and flip back there. So Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And we'll stop there for... For another minute. And so we, we, we've set the stage here. We have this king, right? And he, he's uh, holding a, a wedding banquet for his son. And Middle Eastern cult, uh, culture at the time said there were two invites. All right? You send out your, your messengers and say, hey, the party is this, this time and place. All right? Please come. And then, the, you know, you, you would have, like, you know, weeks or months in order to say, like, hey, like, actually, I'm not going to be able to make it. And they can make other arrangements for who's going to come. But the second invite is, hey, everything is ready come to my house now. And so we've actually skipped invitation one. We're at invitation two already. But it's, it's interesting because everyone who refuses to come has waited until the day of. Mm-hmm. 
to say that they can't come. And they've, they've had the prior notice. And the, 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 they've basically said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll come, even by their tacit uh, uh, know, approval. But they wait until the last day. And he, he, even, he even sends out his servants a second time, which is not customary, to then say, hey, really, everything's ready. Please come. But they refuse. The only reason that this would happen is that the invited guests are trying to do one thing. They are trying to shut this banquet down. They don't want this to happen. And so they get together and say, hey, let's just not go. You can't have a celebration without guests. This is almost like this, this, this coordinated effort of everyone to say at the same time and day, hey, no, we're going to do that. They, they even go over the line at that point of, of you know, disgrace and bringing dishonor on the owner by, by basically uh, trashing his invitation. And some of them go even farther and, and kill the servants of the king. And obviously there's consequences for that. But there's a concerted effort here to shut this banquet down. And there's only one reason that they would do this. They are trying to ignore this king. Because what a, what a wedding banquet is at this time, it's the establishment of a kingly lineage. Right, it's saying, my son is getting married. He will have sons after him. The line will go on. There will be uh, more sons in this dynasty. This kingship, this dynasty will go on. They say, we don't like this. We don't like where this is going. We have to shut this down. And Jesus is really working on two levels here, in, inside and out of the story, because the people in and out of the story know what this banquet means. It means that the kingdom will advance. It means that this king will have a dynasty that will last. And this banquet will confirm that. And, you know, the people out of the story, they don't like where this is going. The Pharisees don't want Jesus to be the king at this banquet. And the people in this story, whoever, you know, this king, they don't want him there. No, they're thinking this banquet will ruin us. If Jesus is that Messiah at the end of time, this is going to ruin us. But we need to shut this down. And they've already been trying to do this. They've been shutting down Jesus for a long time now, trying to get this not to happen. And so they get together, you know, the people in the story, and they're like, let's just not go. And that, that seems kind of weird. It seems kind of off base. It honestly seems kind of stupid. And it is kind of stupid. It's like it, it, ignoring a king to basically say, hey, you're not king. It's like if you just didn't turn on CNN or you're like, you didn't pay your taxes, you'd be like, the American government doesn't exist. If I just don't pay my taxes, then I don't have to follow any laws. Like, that's, that's not how this works, right? And we, we understand that. And we understand that's not how this works, but I think we try to shut God out anyway. And I think we do this in our own lives, and hoping, hoping that he won't really be there if we choose to close our eyes hard enough. And I think, even, I think we, we say this more subconsciously than anything else, or... You know, with our actions even, uh, and I know for myself, it, it's really easy to live like this. And I think, you know, in, in certain times in my, pa- in my past, I've caught myself thinking, you know, like, if I go to this thing, if I go to this church service, if I go to this Bible study or this Bible discussion, I'm, I'm going to have to confront something I don't like. I'm going to have a truth revealed to me that's very inconvenient. You know, if I, if I have a quiet time, if I read my Bible and pray, I'm going to have to confront something in my heart and, you know, give it to God that I would rather honestly just hold on to. Yeah. Whether it's bitterness or just like anger or frustration, like I just want to feel justified in the way I feel. So I'm going to try to hide from God. 
and say, you know what, I'm not going to have this quiet time here. I'm just going to hope if I shut my eyes hard enough, this truth won't exist. Maybe if I don't show up, God won't really be king. No, I won't have to do these things. I won't have to confess. I won't have to change my heart even. And I, I, I think when I was studying the Bible in high school, I used to dread Bible studies. And I would drive myself over to the, to the house of a guy named Audie Monday who was uh, studying the Bible with me. And just with this like growing pit of stress in my stomach. And I was just like, I really, really don't want to be here. Because week in and week out, I would have to confront the fact that I was choosing not to change my life. And week in and week out, I would be asked the same questions. And I'd be just like, no, I didn't share my faith. Or no, I didn't repent. Or, you know, no, I didn't have a quiet time. And I'd have to be confronted with the same ugly truth. It's like, Stephen, you're not living this out. And things are going to have to change. And sometimes I would just like cancel those Bible studies. Because I'd be like, I have homework. You know, I've got stuff to do. Uh, Because I didn't want to confront that reality. And I made these, you know, these excuses. Like, oh, I've got to go off to my field. Or I've got to go off to work. And... It, 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 that wasn't, my heart wasn't to get the truth and to acknowledge God. Yeah. And I, I, I still wasn't living out of the Bible because of my cowardice and my selfishness. And the truth is, avoiding God doesn't keep him from being king. I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we're trying to hide from God? What is it that we're trying to ignore God in order to hold on to? And I, Is it that we're avoiding God because... You'll think he'll get in the way of your homework and your grades. And you need those things to have your self-worth, to have security, to, to, for, for your parents to be proud. Are you avoiding God because maybe things will have to change in your relationship with your significant other? And maybe it's not the most pure relationship and you're going to have to change it. You might even have to break up. You know, is it that you'd rather not be open about the things that you think in your mind or the things that you do behind closed doors? And you, you don't think you could stand people uh, seeing that about you and opening yourself up to their judgment and vulnerability. Or maybe it's just this, this general fear of, of God being the final authority. I think that's what it was for me. And I think all these things just boil down to that one fear of God just being king. Yeah. I, was, I was terrified. And I think still sometimes I can be terrified for God to have the final say in my life. Uh, you know, I, I'm terrified of having an actual king in my life. You know, it's like, man, like, I'm an American. I don't need a king. Like, I vote. You know, we have a republic. And I'm, we're so beyond this. No, like, God is the king, whether or not we're Americans or not. You know, rejecting God doesn't keep him from being king. The banquet goes on. Hiding from God doesn't change any of that. And the truth is still the truth. God is still the king. And just by snubbing the invitation, just by not showing up to a Bible study, by by not coming to church, by not having a quiet time, we can't change that. And what happens next in this story? And it's interesting. Because up until this point in the story, everything is very familiar to the people in the story. And the people realize something as Jesus is telling this parable is that this is actually the exact same parable that Jesus has just told. And it even, even has like the same structure. Uh, you know, we have here this opportunity given by the ruler uh, for some people to do good. And here it's like, it's the invitation. Come to this banquet. And the other one it was, hey, give me some of the fruit of the vineyard. And then those multiple opportunities are rejected. All right. And you have the, uh, the, the invitations just snubbed. And in the parable of the tenants, it was, no, we're actually going to beat these messengers senseless. 
and send them back empty-handed. And then after that, the ruler, you know, what, what's supposed to happen that is that the ruler passes judgment after it's clear that they won't repent. That's what's happened in the previous story. And so after these first two things, they're thinking, we know where this is going. And again, these two polarizing reactions take place. And there's this mounting sense of dread with the Pharisees. But on the other side of the spectrum, it's like, with, with the crowds and the people who are like, man, we are going to be the ones who inherit the kingdom. There might be this rising excitement. Like, oh my gosh, like if, if this story is going where we think it is, Jesus is just reaffirming that we might be the ones to take the kingdom. If this is where it's going. There's this mounting expectation. And I think they're expecting something to happen. And the crowds might even be getting a little riled up at this point. Like, oh man, like here he goes again. Here Jesus goes again, delivering the smackdown of the century twice. And let's see what happens in verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. He's like, yes, it's happened. Jesus has reaffirmed us. We get the kingdom. If these people aren't making it, maybe it's us. He's reaffirmed it. He said it again. But then Jesus keeps going. And this happy little ending takes a troubling turn. Verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And there's a surprise ending here. And the opportunity is again passed to others. There's a surprise ending here where someone is actually rejected from that group. And even those people don't, might not make it. I think, you know, it was, it, it was expected to be this happy little ended, ending for the crowds. And it takes this unexpected turn. And a lot of theologians try to explain this away, and they say, uh, you know, well, you know, in a wedding banquet, uh, the, you know, the host is actually supposed to provide the clothes, right? And so if he's not wearing it, it's just because he's, like, super evil, and it's just there uh, to, you know, uh, to, to just, like, snub the owner. Uh, but that's actually, there's not really a lot of contemporary evidence for that. That's not really how it goes. Really what was expected was for you to show up in your wedding clothes. But what that means is that, you know, you, you put on a nice, a, a white shirt, you know, wash the shirt that you have. There's still this low sh- threshold, but I think this part really makes me uncomfortable. I think even with this low threshold of expectation, it still seems bothersome. You know, and it chafes against this expectation that we have of, of a God who accepts us no matter what. And, and it clashes with this view that Love is, you know, God, God's love is all-inclusive, you know, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's just going to get you no matter what. And, and why is that? Because I think throwing someone out for something like this just seems very nitpicky. It seems very arbitrary. And I think it makes me uncomfortable, ultimately, because I'm thinking, like, man, am I going to get thrown out for something that's arbitrary? Am I doing everything perfectly? And all of a sudden, I think when I read this, it, it becomes a story uh, that says, like, I need to, to measure up to some standard of impeccable righteousness. I need to, like, take care of every detail in my life. 
Uh, and I, I, I get uncomfortable because I'm like, man, I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. And it, I'm, I'm kind of upset because this, this isn't how I expected God to be. And it shapes my understanding of this, this parable. But I think if this makes us uncomfortable, I think so much is revealed in our hearts when we feel like this. And when we're thrown off by this bit of the passage. Because I think when I, when I realize that discomfort in my own heart... You know, I look at this passage and I look at the parts that bother me and the parts that don't. And for me, I'm very okay with everything that has previously happened here. I'm very okay with the part of the passage where the king dishonors himself to invite everybody else into the town. To fill his house with people that have no business associating with the king. That part I'm very okay with. But I get so uncomfortable when someone is thrown out for furthering that dishonor. And I get so uncomfortable when someone, when, it, when, it, it's, when someone scorns that hospitality and scorns that grace. And that's when I start like, you know, having all these like red, red lights flash in my mind. That's when I get uncomfortable. But the previous bits of it, I'm very okay with. Wow. I think we have this expectation of how grace is supposed to work. And so we're okay when the king gets dishonored. And when the king brings on this dishonor for himself. But we get so uncomfortable with someone getting thrown out because they aren't properly dressed. And I think we take so much of grace for granted. And I think, you know, I, I think I bring this mindset into my life, you know, and I think, you know, it's, it's this mindset of like, oh, well, you know, like, it's not that bad of a sin, so I, I, I can tolerate this. Like, it'll, it'll be forgiven. You know, it's fine. Like, there will be grace. I can do what I want. Or, you know, I, I, can, I can put, you know, when I was a student, I was like, I can put school over God in this instance. Like, it's fine. Like, God will still be there after this exam. Like, I can, I can kind of put God down and, and pick him up, and it'll kind of just be like my terms. And I can kind of, I, I'll just, I know God will be there, so I'm going to live my life this way sometimes, and then I'll live for God another time. And I think it, bego- it goes beyond all this, because I think what, what, when this makes us so uncomfortable, it's because we've forgotten the whole point of this banquet. And we've gotten caught up in so many other details and how we expect all this to go and then we forget why the banquet is even happening at all. And it's right there in verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. They're invited for a reason. These people are invited for a specific reason. It's not to feed them. It's not to just kind of like give them a party where they can like throw down for the weekend and like go back to whatever. They're invited to celebrate someone else. To revel in the establishment of a kingdom. To revel in in the son of this king and this beautiful marriage and everything that will come after that. That's why they're there. They're supposed to be focused on that. They're supposed to be focused on him. I think we get so weird about if the king should have thrown this man out, but he's clearly not there to celebrate. Yeah. He's clearly not there to fulfill the purpose of what's going on. It's like showing up without wedding clothes is like showing up to a wedding in like sweats, right? You, you know that that person really isn't there to encourage the bride and the groom, mm-hmm. all right? What, what bride or groom is encouraged by the guy that shows up in his, his, uh, his sweatshirt, all right, and his, uh, and, and, and his slippers? It's not encouraging. And even beyond that, like, it just distracts everyone else from that purpose. Like, try going to that wedding and then seeing that guy and not thinking about it every time you see him. 
You're not thinking about the bride and groom. You're like, who is this guy? Like, how, how does he even like these people? Yeah. Like, that's all you're thinking about. You're not celebrating anymore. It detracts from everything. It's distracting for everyone. No one can properly celebrate this awesome event if they're focused on something else. Least of all, if, you're, if they're focused on themselves. Yeah. And the guy like this is focused on what can I get out of this arrangement? Yeah. I'm not there for the bride and this wedding and this groom. I'm here for the free food. I'm here to be comfortable. I'm here to get something and then leave and then go on with the rest of my life. I think so often we try to enter the kingdom and our focus is on ourselves. Come on, bro. And, you know, like, what can I get from this? Like, how can God make me feel good or give me what I want? And we, we play along until we don't get what we want anymore. And that's this mindset of, like, I'll, I'll pick up God when, when it's convenient. I'll put him down when it's not. I'm here for me. And for me, I think this is still a temptation. So often my eyes are just on me and my comfort. And how do I live out discipleship? as comfortably as possible? And how can I make sure that I, I can get by with the least amount of effort so I can, I can ease my guilt without trying too hard? And you know, how few people can I share my faith with so that I don't feel as guilty? And how, how close to the line of impurity can I get so I, I still get what I want, but I don't have to confess? Or how close to this other line can I get so that I can still get what I want, but still you know, be at this banquet, still be in the kingdom? But God didn't call us to this banquet. He didn't call us to the kingdom for this. He called us to celebrate with him. And if we can just take our eyes off ourselves, we'll be able to see just how amazing it is that we've been invited here at all. Because I think none of us deserve to be invited to this banquet. None of the people in this story invited or, or deserve to be invited into the house of a king. And I think when we realize that, we realize just how amazing this calling is. We realize that we're not here for us. We're here to marvel at how amazing it is that this invitation has even been extended to us. Our eyes won't be ourselves, be on ourselves. It's going to be on Jesus. But we have to be humble enough to approach God his way, to do it his way, to get rid of our impurity, to get rid of our insecurity, to get rid of the judgmental thoughts that we have brewing in our mind, you know, and the ways we view people and the idol of school and our families. But if we just marvel at the fact that the living God lowered himself and dishonored himself to invite us to dine with him and his son, we're, we're going to do everything possible to honor him. If we just realize that the invitation was, was sealed in the blood of his son to celebrate with him the coming of the kingdom, we're, our eyes are no longer going to be on ourselves. We're not going to be nitpicky about like, oh man, like what can I get away with? Like how can I be more comfortable? It's like, no, like I am all in to celebrate with God. I am all in to make sure that I can give as much honor back to God as he has lost when he reached out to me. Now we're going to do everything we can to please God with our presence, to honor him, to raise him up, to praise him. And if our, if our eyes aren't on ourselves, if our eyes are on the reason that we're there, there's no chance we're going to be like that guy who showed up without wedding clothes. We only have to worry about it. And we get so caught up in like, ah, am I going to be like this guy? If our eyes are on Jesus, there's no way that we're going to be like that guy. We don't have to worry about it because everything we're going to do is for the glory and the honor of the king, for the establishment of this line. 
And if we can just focus on how crazy it is that we've been given this opportunity at the end of times to dine with Jesus and God and in heaven for eternity and that he sacrificed so much to get us there, we will live differently. These things that we're holding on to will evaporate. We're going to want to give them up. And if this does not describe you, talk to somebody. Please reach out to somebody after service. You know, if you're like, man, like I, I am struggling with living this out. And I feel bad about not wanting to, but I know that I should talk about that with somebody. This is not supposed to be a burden. This is supposed to be a celebration. And there will be hardship. But God wants us to celebrate with him because he knows that this life is more fulfilling than anything we could ever get. He knows that this celebration is better than anything we're going to get. We could spend our lives you know, on our fields and on our markets or on our businesses or whatever. But he wants to celebrate with us. But let's celebrate with Jesus. Let's put our eyes back on him and the reason that we're here at all. Uh, and to God be the glory. Amen. Amen. And uh, we're going to have some announcements right now.